Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show today. I'm in my living room, my house, with two of my long-standing friends, two of my good friends, one of the only mother-son combos we've ever had on the podcast, Beverly and Josh Ross. Welcome to the show, friends. What's up? It's great to be here. Yeah. It is so What, good what to are the mother-son uh, duo have you had on a podcast before? None. I, don't, I can't think of any. I was, as I'm saying that, I'm going, you, you guys are the only ones, which, I mean, has to be one of the, I'm not saying it's the best accomplishment of your life, but it's top five, I would think. Yeah, it's up there. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. The, the mother-son, like who are both preachers, how does that, how does that work? Because obviously, Rick, your, Josh, his father, Beverly's husband, preaches brother jonathan worship leader so you got a bunch of preachers and obviously casey ross josh your, your wife is a very gifted one as well so how do, do you guys like fight over who says the prayer at the dinner table for like thanksgiving <laughs> yeah you know i mean usually it's given to a grandkid and who knows what they're gonna grow up to be yeah so not really man but we got a lot to say when we're together yeah i bet i bet a lot of talking I don't think we are, we're never short on words or stories to share. No. Yeah, a lot of stories. Yeah, a lot of stories. A lot of good stories here. And, uh, okay, so you guys have a book. It's called Scarred Hope. Mm-hmm. It comes out, like, this week, whenever the podcast is released. And I've not been excited to read it. I, I've not been excited to read it at all. Because, Josh, you told me I'm going to cry before I get to the third chapter. <laughs> and you're 100% right. Because it's it's about grief and... I don't want to. I don't want to talk about grief. I don't want to read about grief. And you were one hundred percent right. Didn't make it through the first three chapters without crying. Why? Why? Why do we have to write a book about grief? Why do we have to talk about grief today, Beverly? I'm. I'm. I'm happy. I'm feeling like a good day. Some friends are at my house. We could be talking about so many things that are more exciting than grief. Why? Why do we have to talk about grief today? I do feel like we probably should put a subscript somewhere in the book that says start with chapter three and then go back and read chapter one and two when when you can. But Mm -hmm. this book was birthed out of a really dark chapter in our personal lives 10 and a half years ago. Um, My daughter, Josh's sister, died. And those two chapters, I think really when I started writing, it probably was more like four chapters. And I just had to weed it out and take it down and take stuff out, but it was so therapeutic for me just to, I've, I'd never written it before. Yeah. And so just to uh, write, but we have a grief story. And through that grief story, we have been students. Yeah. We've learned, we've learned a lot. And it's, it's very uh, before and after when you have, uh, the way I put it in the book is when you have a day, we all have one that's the worst day of our lives, when it's your turn to have that, that mm-hmm. day. We all have before and after stories, but then sometimes it's things that you learn after that got rooted before, and so it's hard to tell when some of those things started. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's hard to tell when some of those things started because they, they grew after, but they were birthed before. Yeah. Grief doesn't seem like it's an, an abstract idea. It's always autobiographical. Absolutely. When we talk about grief, we're talking about specific incidents That's that right. happened. So. Jenny's death 10 years ago, February? 10 and a half years ago, yep. 10 and a half years ago, 2010, Mm -hmm. February 2010. Yes. Uh, Since then, Josh, I know you've talked about grief to many people. And as you tell Jenny's story, your story, the family story, people, I assume, come up and it causes them to feel like they're free to tell their story. Is that a fair read? 
Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. And I think that's the way it's supposed to go. Like, hey, we're going to, we wrote this book. It's somewhat memoirish. Mm-hmm. It's narrative. There's stories about our family, but we try to do this in a way where you have a story to tell too, and it's worth telling. Mm-hmm. And what does it mean for us to be people who model empathy? Because it takes a lot of that for you to actually be willing to hear someone's story. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and let me, let me back up just for a moment. Is that all right? Yeah. Kind of give us a little bigger scope. Uh, one is, uh, this is my fourth book to write. Two of them I've co-written with people. Yes. One with my mom, who's been, I think today is her third time to be on your podcast. The other one I wrote was with Jonathan Storman, who's a regular... Yeah, he's uh, assistant. Yeah. I mean, what, monthly, every six weeks or so? Yeah, he's my podcast. If you had to write a book with either my mom or Storman, I'm not going to ask which one you would choose, but what, what would be the book you would write with them? Well, if it's with Jonathan, obviously, it would be with like a lot of pictures, because that's kind of <laughs> the way he communicates his pictures and... Uh, or it would be, hey, did you know I grew up in a 10-member church? Or, hey, did you know I was homeschooled? Like, if, if I wanted to write a book with pictures about homeschooling or being a part of a 10-member church, the obvious answer is Stormont. Now, if I wanted to write something with, I don't know, substance, that might be a Beverly kind of book. So each one has their own angle and strength they bring to the table. Yeah, I mean, we we all we love Stormont. I know you would say something like that. But with my mom, I thought you would go, you went to substance. I thought you may say something like, well, we would probably write about suffering or grief and not that we look at you mom as she's the woman that we only talk to about grief but this is a lot of what you do Mm. the first book i wrote and this is not a shameless plug but the first book i wrote was called scarred faith this Mm -hmm. book's called scarred hope and it was a journey i was on both processing my sister's death back in i guess i wrote that book in 2011 2012 Uh, But it was also just, I mean, the suffering in Memphis, the city where I've lived now for 12 years, uh, as I try to immerse myself in incarnational living. Uh, And I mean, there's suffering that happens all around us. And I mean, as as believers of Jesus, we're not called to go try to seek out suffering. Maybe you are. I mean, we're not called to wake up and try to suffer, but suffering is just part of life. So how are we going to do it? Now, I feel like this is important to say, because one thing I've really loved about my mom, and I've shared this in a couple of contexts, is my mom was not a public speaker until almost the age of 40. She was a stay-at-home mom. Mm-hmm. She went and got a degree after my youngest brother went to kindergarten. She was a first grade and kindergarten teacher for about 10 years. Then she went and got her master's degree Mm -hmm. in marriage and family therapy. She was a counselor for one or two years in an elementary school and then began began, uh, working in a a clinic and then from there opened her own practice. And then after Jenny died, it's grown into now this huge grief center that serves a thousand plus people every year. And so the journey for her, it wasn't until around the age of 40 that she started teaching a Wednesday night class that grew to where then she started traveling around the country and around the world speaking. So it's mm-hmm. so for some people, they need to hear that. It, like Sometimes you have to get through some seasons of your life before you find that thing you're most passionate about. Yeah. And now that she's been 10 years on this grief journey, it was actually in October of 2018 when she called and told us that she had cancer, which she's cancer free now. Yeah. But when she called that and told us she had cancer, that I, I, res- I called her two days later and I said, Mom, I think we need to write a book. You know, as you process your own journey right now, mm-hmm. there's so much in you. There's so much wisdom that people need to hear. So a lot of what has happened with Scarred Hope is I, I, I wrote some of this, mm-hmm. but I, I, and not that my mom needed me to serve as a prompt, 
but I, I wanted to be that encourager to come and like, hey, there's a book inside of you, and I want to use whatever experience or wisdom I have, which isn't a lot of it, <laughs> but to try to get this book out. Yeah. So, so this was a journey that started in October 2018. Wow. Beverly, b- before Jenny's Hope, which is the counseling center that you, know, you run now, which focuses on grief, how much grief counseling were you doing before Jenny's death? You know, quite a bit. In fact, I taught a grief workshop in Africa before Jenny died. Mm-hmm. I kn- knew grief. I, um, my spiritual plunge when Josh is talking about I started speaking was my best friend died very suddenly. And so a lot of my spiritual roots were formed around a death experience. Mm-hmm. But even as I say that, I remember walking out of the hospital that day saying something like, in, in my mind, not out loud, I did not felt like this. Hmm. I taught it. I had been to workshops where I learned. I'd read about it so I could help clients. But I had no idea what it felt like to walk that, yeah. that road. Yeah. I mean, that's, that seems true to my experience as well, that... You know, my mom died a couple months ago, and you know I've talked about grief. When Jenny passed away, you know, ten years ago, that was you know a secondhand grief for me, sure. obviously because y'all matter a whole lot to me. And uh, we've talked numerous times about you know Jenny's passing and y'all's grief, and uh, there are plenty of other friends and people that I've you know been there secondhand for for their grief. And so I felt like I, I had some knowledge, like conceptual ideas about grief, but until you know, grief presented in the way that we've experienced it in my family, it, it it's not the same. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like that's why grief is so autobiographical because you can learn the ideas, you can learn the precepts, you can, you know, re- read a book like this, which gives you a lot of great, helpful stuff. Uh, but until you have the experience of it, it's, it, it's not the same. I, I guess that's probably true with a, a lot of different facets of life, mm-hmm. that there's intellectual knowledge and then there's experiential knowledge and maybe more than others. Is it fair to say like more than other things grief is like that? Or do you think this is similar to other you know, parts of life? Mm, such a great question. I think grief is so pronounced with it that I would say grief. But what I really want to say right there is death is not the only grief producing event. Yeah. Um, there's a whole lot of things that people really ache about Hmm. and we could just spend probably the rest of the podcast just coming up with a a list. Okay. So if let's say you, you see a hundred clients in a month, just for conversation's sake, Mm -hmm. how how many of those are people who are talking to you because of the actual loss of a person that they loved? Oh, that's a great question. I'm going to say probably 60, 60, 60% now. Mm -hmm. Now, if we're doing family feud, what are the next four highest things that are come, come on that list of specific types of grief that people are wanting to talk about? Uh, broken relationships, okay. divorce, finding out someone's been unfaithful, uh, diagnosis. I've got several clients right now struggling with their mm. own or someone else's a diagnosis. Uh, a child that isn't living like they want them to live, making really poor choices. So they're grieving the child that they uh-huh. kind of expected. Uh, so... Uh, unfaithfulness or divorce that's Mm -hmm. probably the the second highest one Mm -hmm. and so yeah i've had that that conversation where people felt like they they had lost someone Mm -hmm. because in the sense they they find out this person isn't who i thought they were and they have to grieve the loss of that person who was unfortunately along the 
the figment of their imagination, but mm-hmm. they imagine that to be true. So, so grief is, is many different things. Absolutely. Yeah. Death of a dream is sometimes when our partner walks away. It's death of the dream. I thought we were going to grow old together. Are, are you giving different coaching or coaching, counseling with the different areas? Is there like a, a unique twist to grief about the loss of a loved one compared to the loss of a dream or the faithfulness of a partner? Probably not. I'm probably teaching good self-care in all of them. Really? Um, energy. And I listen to the stories over and over and over. Hmm. So, Josh, you said you, you've listened to a lot of these stories. As you talk about grief, you hear stories over and over again. Beverly, you're saying you hear the stories over and over again. Mm-hmm. What what part... I'm sorry, Beverly, I keep asking counseling questions. But what percentage of counseling do you think is creating space where someone can tell their story uninterrupted with someone who really cares to listen is going to be empathetic and just ask basic follow-up questions. Tell me more. Let me hear about this. And what percent would you say, like giving constructive advice and pointing people in a healthy direction? Well, I typically see people for an hour Mm -hmm. and I timed it this last week just because I thought it would be interesting. And I'm going to say 50 minutes out of the hour is me hearing the story Every week, sometimes hearing a new facet, hearing it again, and then the last ten is when I'm. They want to know what I think, or how I can help them, or how I can direct them. I step in. Yeah, there's one thing. <clears throat> there's one chapter in our book. In fact, it's in section three where we have kind of a dialogue style mm-hmm. where we talk about. There are those times you're with people and they'll say they'll start a story mm-hmm. and they'll say, "Have I told this before?" Which is a really good time if you're empathetic. If you're trying to practice empathy, mm-hmm. your response isn't, "Yeah, I don't want to hear it," or "Yeah, yeah you, you know." Just in any way where your 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 response is, "Yes, I've heard it before. We don't need to tell it again." But how? I mean, you wrote that usually your response is, "I have heard it, but I would love to hear that story again." Yes. Like keep doing it because a lot of times it's for the person, it's mm. for them as they're either processing their own grief or the joy. And so many lives to actually get to tell a story to someone who cares about someone who has passed away Hmm. or something that has been lost. Maybe it's not just death, just something that has been lost that somebody actually cares for you to process a story, which is often my go-to now Hmm. when I'm with people who have lost a loved one or even you with losing your mom. Who was a loved one? Who was a loved one? Yes, which I I can't remember if I did this last night or not. It's just kind of become part of who I am. But when I'm with people who I know they have lost a loved one, uh, usually my question is, tell me a story that you think about yeah. when you when you mm-hmm. think about your mom or when you think yeah. about your daughter. What what story comes to mind? Yeah. So that's it's that. So a lot of times, what we do, and and it comes from a good spot, but we'll be like, "Hey, look, I heard your mom died. How did your mom die?" And you may not want to tell a story of how your mom died, yeah. but hey, tell me a story about what you remember about your mom. Mm-hmm. And that's usually, good. like a smile will come on someone's face because it's not just me having to tell you how they died it's let me tell a story about a christmas or you know at the lake or whatever it may be or something about their personality that they just it's good for them to remember to tell a story i I was with uh a friend who's a couple years younger and there's someone that you know she she kind of knew who this person was but uh wasn't like a close friend and in the time since they had last seen each other this person's significant other had passed away and so this younger friend goes do I say something? Do I say something? Do I mention it? And Adelina, always mention it. Like, as Absolutely. a general rule of thumb, yes. people, so you're describing, Josh, the idea of always mention, get them to tell the story, not just how they die, but something special, unique about them. Beverly, what do you think that does when someone gets to tell those celebratory stories about the best of a person that they lost? 
I think it helps us remember the life more than the death. Mm-hmm. I don't want Jenny just to be known for she was a beautiful 31-year-old who died. Mm-hmm. I want her to be known. She was a beautiful 31-year-old that had a gorgeous life. She did some amazing things in her life. And I believe by telling the story over and over again, it's like the adage we use repetitively, but peeling that onion, it allowed me to go deeper and deeper and deeper in my own heart when I could sit with people that I felt safe with, that I didn't feel like were trying to fix me or rush me or shut me down. They would really just hold space with me and let, let me share that I was the one learning about my own story mm-hmm. through just being able to, to share it and, and celebrate Jenny's life. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think one thing was really interesting, and Mom, you wrote about this in the book, but how grief stories link. Yes. So it's not like when your best friend Charmin died, mm-hmm. and then another decade mm-hmm. or so goes by, and then Jenny died. Right. It's grief stories in our lives link. Yes. They join together. So for me, I can think of 2004, 2010, 2014, 2019, where there were events in my life. Uh, one of those was a death. The other were just events that happened that kind of made me spiral, but grief stories link. So when I'm with my therapist... Usually, we'll talk about something, but then by the third or fourth session, we're talking about something that wasn't even the reason I called her, like, hey, I need to process something. She ends up asking questions. And you write about this in the book, that a lot of times by the third session with with clients, they're telling stories or unpacking brokenness that wasn't there. It wasn't the reason that brought them in. Right. Because all of these stories, they, they, they... somehow like weave themselves yes. together. So we're on this journey. We're suffering just a part of our it's a part of our life. And there is a way to embrace hope and adventure and joy, even though all these stories of pain do link in our lives. They do. Mm-hmm. I, I want to go back to telling the story for people who are grieving not with the loss of someone. I want to come back to that. So don't let me forget. But Josh to that the the person uh, the the couple who wrote the forward for the book Mike and Diane and Cope uh, Mike had said years ago, and I've, it, I've clung to this from you know, seven years ago, where Mike was referencing the death of his nephew and then the death of his daughter. And he said that grief doesn't add, it multiplies. Mm-hmm. So you have this like compounding interest almost of grief. And when you think of them like linking together these, these stories that they all just kind of build on each other, as you think of what does lament and grief look like, is it... Is it helping peel each one back so that they're like it, it doesn't multiply to be overwhelming, or is it? I, I don't know, Beverly. How, how do you approach that with the idea that that grief links together? It kind of compounds; it gets bigger. Do you feel like you need to like pick apart one grief before you can get to the other? Or, or is, I don't think so. I think they're just your story, and I think being able to process suffering also opens. I'm going to say the floor to our heart for for joy, for things that only God can fill us with. Grief moved the floor to my heart. And everything that I'm experiencing now is in that deeper compartment. Mm -hmm. So joy is deeper. But I feel like that when I talk about Charmin's death, I'm filled with um, grief, but also joy listening to where her family is now. and sharing space. Um, I think life is so filled with oxymorons that it's not one or the other. They just go. They just just go together. 
And so it's not that because they link together means my life gets heavier and heavier. It moves the floor for the good stuff too that I'm able to experience. Yeah. The other day, uh, my dad had given this piece of jewelry to me to give to Lindsay from my mom that Mm -hmm. he wanted her to have. And it was sitting out and Audrey, our youngest daughter, took it and like put it around a doorknob or something just not knowing what it was. And I said, Hey, Hey, Audrey, let's not play with that. That one's kind of special. That was, that was Nana's. And, you know, I go back into the room or something and she sets it down and I come back and she's crying and she goes, why did you, why'd you tell me about Nana? You made me so sad. Now I'm just sad thinking about Nana. And so she was, you know, just crying really upset. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that's a conversation you've experienced multiple times, but, you know, I told her, I was like, you know, the reason that we talk about Nana, even though it makes us really sad is that like the sadness is almost like the, the wrapping paper around the gift of the memory. And the memory is the joy that we get to hold on to, even if it's wrapped up in, you know, painful moments that come up first and foremost. Mm-hmm. A phrase, a phrase you use a lot in mom. I'm asking you. A phrase you use a lot in grief, and also throughout the book, is a phrase of "We learn to carry our grief." Mm-hmm. It, it actually, I mean, it became part of the subtitle: right. "Learning to carry grief." So, un- unpack that. I think that could help some people right now. Well, you know, a lot of times we talk about being healed from grief. Yeah. Usually, for first session, when I can't wait to be healed from this pain, I'm like, healing isn't the goal. To, to use that language implies that grief is wrong or it needs to be fixed, it's sick. And to be to say it's healed means it won't exist anymore. But I love the language of we learn to carry our grief. And the goal in my counseling work, the goal in my life, is to learn to build emotional and spiritual strength, muscles, to carry my pain mm-hmm. because this is what happens. I learned this in my own gr- grief counseling when I was sitting with a grief therapist. Love and grief are so linked, you can't separate them. We only grieve what we love. And yep. he told me, I love this. Luke, I hope I've said this. To, I, I love this. He said, instead of saying I'm grieving Jenny hard today, what if you said I'm loving Jenny really hard today? Hmm. And that's just a switch for us of giving that language with with your daughter. Yeah, we're sad, but you are loving her. And that's where the tears come. But it's also where the giggles come when we remember sweet times we had. But um, yeah, I I don't like the language that I'm going to be healed from it. Because then I think when I have a grief moment, it surprised me and can sometimes feel more suffocating when I act like it's gone, but I learned to hold space. I learned to carry it. Mm-hmm. The The story we tell in a book is a story you told me about. It's in a movie. Nicole Kidman was mm-hmm. in a movie called... Um, Ra- rabbit Hole. Yeah, Rabbit Hole. And it's this powerful scene. Her and her mom are standing in an attic. Both of them had a grief. Both of them had experienced grief, a loss of a couple of people in their family. Mm-hmm. And uh, Nicole Kidman's character says, will it ever go away? And the mom says, no, it doesn't ever go away, but you learn to carry it. Yeah. She said, it's like a brick that someone sews in your pocket. Mm-hmm. And at first, that's all you think about. You're carrying a brick in your pocket, but then you kind of forget it's there until you bump into the, you know, the kitchen counter. Yeah. And then you remember it's there. You reach into your pocket to get a Kleenex or your keys, and you remember it's there, but you learn to carry it. Mm-hmm. 
And that was just a whole image for me, mm-hmm. as I, not just as we wrote a book, but as I even live a life as a pastor pouring into people, is just how do we learn to carry our grief and carry our pain mm-hmm. in a way that's healthy? Yeah. Beverly, you, you had you'd used that metaphor uh, or anecdote multiple times before, and I've since repeated that multiple, because it seems to be so true, like it's just always there, you're going to bump into it. Uh, our mutual friend, Josh Graves, told me a couple of weeks ago, he said, you know, the best metaphor for grief I've heard is that it's like you're standing on the shore with your back to the ocean and you know a wave's going to hit you, but you don't know when it is. That's right. And so it's the same metaphor, like you're going to bump into something knowing the brick is there or you're going to become aware of it. It's just, it, it's just always there. It's a new mm-hmm. normal. It's a new part of mm-hmm. what life is. And it seems that one of the things that happens with grief and loss is that you become very aware of regrets because mm. the thing about death is that death is final and there's no way to go back and undo or to fix or there's no second chance. There's no ability to amend those things. And you just have r- regrets. One, one of the ways that you tell the story of Jenny's death in the book is the line is you say that the uh, wimpiest antibiotics would wipe it out, referring to what she had. And I, I, I can't imagine it would be very easy for me to look back and go, shoulda, woulda, coulda. Like if I would have, I should have, I could have, and then this wouldn't, you know, be our reality. You know, I, I know that's very common for a lot of people. It's not uh, out of the normal conversation of my family. You know, just what could we have done? Mm-hmm. Could we have done something different? I assume that's a common thing Absolutely in your, your practice, Beverly. Sure. And <clears throat> how do you talk about letting go of the regrets of things that you can't change? First of all, um, this is in some of Dr. Brown's work, Brene Brown. We made it 25 minutes uh-huh. without a Thank you. Brene reference, Thank which yeah. <laughs> uh, it's longer than I thought, as was the Brene Brown reference in the book happened much mm. later than any of us expected. Because yes. Beverly, we know that you love Brene. I uh, do love as, Brene. As I love Brene a whole mm-hmm. lot. Josh mm-hmm. doesn't care about who's, her. So. Who's Brene Brown? <laughs> just Joe. We'll just talk joking. when the podcast is over. You're Before dead. you get dinner tonight, we'll solve that one. Oh, he's such a Josher. <laughs> no, but um, what, what were we talking about? Uh we were talking about regrets, and then we talked about Brene oh, has a lot. What Brene says in the book, uh, Rising Strong, she says <laughs> that every person is doing the very best they know how to do in the moment. Yeah. Now, we can reject that statement, and we can say, no, 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 no. I know people that are not. They may be, and I'm a better counselor when I believe people are doing the best they can do. That also means... My Angelo, as soon as I learn how to do better, I'm going to do better. But I think that is a true statement that given the information we had early, we were doing the best we knew how to do. I also write and really had to not make the whole book about this one. But I believe life, I believe death, I believe grief gives us lots of opportunities to practice forgiveness. Mm-hmm. For other people and for ourselves, it is a movement of grace. And it's not helpful. Oh, how many times have I talked about this the last week with clients? It's not helpful to blame people. And I love the phrase I just used it's not helpful. What is helpful in grief? What makes you feel better? And being angry about something that doesn't help. And so what we've got to do is, yes, feel the emotion with, with that. Feel that. Talk about that. But then in order to move through it, it doesn't mean we condone what was done. I, I don't say 
It's okay you didn't give Jenny an antibiotic. No big deal. I don't condone that. But it's not going to be helpful to the way I I live out the rest of my life. I do believe a PA, who she saw for the diagnosis, did the very best she knew how to do. We do not know. We still don't know if Jenny had a strep test or not. We would ask Jenny. She would say yes sometime and no sometime. We don't know the answer. As I just said that, Jenny was diagnosed with, with the flu and was septic three and a half days, two and a half days later. Mm-hmm. Because what she had is group A strep that had gone without the wimpiest of antibiotics. So yeah. that's where that. Brene's chapter is just really brilliant on doing the best they can. Yep. And, you know, there's a line that she says where someone tells her, you know, I, I don't know if it's always true that people, but my life is better off when yes. I am. And she has this great story. She, you know, she's at this conference and people are rude. And so she goes to her therapist and she wants her therapist to take her side and chew these people out because they, they wronged her. And, you know, she gives, you know, Brene the line, people are doing the best they can. And she, so she goes to the bank and she's still thinking about this. And there's, you know, a racist customer and there's a, you know, an, an army veteran who's re- the recipient of some of these, you know, racial comments or undertones. And he says, you know, that person's probably doing the best they can. You know, <laughs> I don't know what's going on at home. And it's just this picture of grace that mm-hmm. I, I don't always have. And anger seems easy to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it was James Baldwin who said, what people realize when they let go of their anger is that they to deal that, that they have to deal with their hurt. Yes, and it's easier to be angry than it is to be hurt. And so it'd be right. easy for me to say, "I, I want to you know do whatever to destroy that PA's career because mm-hmm. I'm just hurt because I you know I lost my loved one." How do we get past the the anger, the whatever way we express the wrong that we've experienced to to receive the ability to say, "I'm I'm just hurt. I'm just sad. I'm just grieving." And these other emotions, which, especially for guys, don't you think, Josh, it's easier for guys to express anger than it is to hurt. What helps us get there for, for either one of you? Well, I usually have people print off or buy a feelings wheel where we can look at it, look at some other emotions. And what we teach in our counseling center is that anger is not ever a primary emotion. Yeah. Get underneath it so you can stop. Yeah. For me, it was, uh, I bypassed anger and went straight to disappointment. I was so disappointed. Do you think disappointment is a healthier emotion or a deeper emotion? Becca Stevens said in the the podcast a long time ago that uh, anger is a shallow emotion. Mm -hmm. And I've clung on it. It's the same concept. But disappointment, it's a deeper emotion. It's more Mm -hmm. true. It's it's closer to reality. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. I've seen the picture where it's that iceberg scene. Where the anger is what you see, but when you go under, there's a whole lot of other emotions that are bigger, that are deeper, that are... But as you put, we live in a society that anger is acceptable. Yeah. Josh, I assume that you... I'm assuming that you've had experiences where people present to you like, oh, Josh, I'm, I'm, I'm angry you said this, or you did this and it's wrong, or the church is doing this and it's wrong, and they're really upset, um, but you, you give them 20 minutes, and it's like the you know, the fighter who punches themselves out and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, this is what they actually are. It's like the person, they're really angry. Let's use a MMA metaphor because those always go great with the podcast <laughs> like this. Um, but like they express their anger up front, but then underneath you realize there's something else going on. Yeah, I mean, that, that doesn't happen to me much that people get upset with things I say or <laughs> That's weird. things I post. Rarely, rarely does it ever happen. It's weird. I've known you for 20 years and I get <laughs> angry at you all the time. But, but when it does, yeah, man, that's exactly right. And, you know, to live, trying to live from a place where, just from a healthy place, you can sit with that and 
process it. I mean, especially mm-hmm. disappointment is a, it's an honest emotion. It's an honest expression mm-hmm. and trying, you know, we talk about carrying pain and carrying grief, but we also, I mean, we talk about how do we give space to people to share those things too, like give them space. Okay. You're angry. Great. Let's talk about it. Yeah. And the Bible doesn't say don't ever get angry. Mm-hmm. So when you're angry, you should have somebody you can process your anger with. And when you process your anger, rarely do you, st- rarely do you leave in the same state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. What people expect when they're mad, what you're talking about is they expect you to match their anger. So if I'm angry at, at you, I, it feels better for me. It's easier for me. Let's go at that. Doesn't feel better. It's easier for me if you match my anger. But when you don't, and then I'm forced to explore what's underneath it. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. That's so true. One of the things that we experience in grief is that the life that we expect or that we wanted Mm -hmm. isn't reality. That's right. And often the life that we expect and the life that we want is, you know, couched in kind kind of churchy language. You know, God bless me with this new job or God bless me with the new car or God bless me with a healthy family. And you mentioned in the book that when the word blessed... Uh, when we use the word blessed with uh, the idea of muchness, what happens to our faith is really dangerous because what happens when you don't get the muchness that you expect a blessing to be? Mm-hmm. How do we reframe the understanding of what blessings are when you're having to grieve that you don't get the, the material things that would make you happy? Mm. You know, that's part of what I wrote about. And this is so deep for me. I don't even know if I had the the language to express this well, but we talk about God's muchness that that's what I use in the book with that. We attach with our language about blessing. We attach his love, his presence and his favor. Mm -hmm. When I get what I pray for, I'm like, ah, he loves me. When I get what I want, I'm like, yes, I'm in such favor with the Lord. And then pulling out of the hospital that day, it was already hitting me because it was a word I used a lot of just, what is it? What does it mean now mm-hmm. to be blessed? And I think this is really important for conversations. I, I feel like a lot what we do in the book is just open conversation starters. We don't necessarily say this is the way it is, but we say explore the, this one. And I think that's the way it is with the word blessed, to hold space with people Walking out life, I like blessed when we know the Lord showed up. Mm-hmm. We know his presence is with us. I can't tell you how many couples that I visited with in my office in the last month, even, that are what they would call infertile. They cannot have a baby. Mm. And Baby Blessing Sunday is a beating for them. A lot of them won't even go. And that's, I'm talking about church staff, won't even go on baby blessings Sunday. I'm not saying we don't do it. We need to be aware of it though. It's just, yes, it's hard. And I remember there's an elder's wife that sits by me in church and they buried their only child, their, their daughter, uh, probably a year before I'm, I'm, I met them. I never knew Crystal. She doesn't know whether to stand up on Mother's Day. Am I a mother? Why, yes, you are. You stand up. You get up. You Mm -hmm. are a mother. 
but there's an identity shift with all of these words. But, but to know I am blessed because the Lord does see me. Mm-hmm. I am blessed because he knows me. My favorite verse that I've claimed through blessing is Ephesians 1.3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed me, blessed us, in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing through Christ. That's good. And if I were going to do that in a, my own version, I would say the Lord has blessed me with exactly what I need to walk this path out. Yeah, that's good. That's good. All right, I got a couple uh, quick questions. When someone comes up and says, I'm sorry your loved one is gone, but they're in a better place now. What is the right response, Josh? <laughs> well, physical, physical harm is not the right response. It's not. Okay, no. It's not. It's good for you to, there are times where you need to step back from your three to six foot. I'm not talking about social distancing, but you're, I need to, I need to step back because there is some, some physical harm. It's not, it's, it's a statement, and we do a lot of this in the book. There are statements a lot of us have used before that are not helpful, but they're probably mm-hmm. coming from a good place. Mm-hmm. But that's one that rarely does it comfort people. What about uh, this happened for a reason? Does that help or hurt? <laughs> what about uh, God must have needed another angel? <laughs> help or hurt? That was a little giggle from Beverly. I like that. <clears throat> yeah. Definitely not help. Yeah. The, the thing that has stood out to me with those comments, and I give this advice to everyone because I received it from uh, Janine Reese, actually, where she said she had lost um, a husband probably early 30s. Maybe even not even 30. Oh, no, I think early 20s. In 20s. Okay, wow. Her, so her husband passed away, and her experience led her to the proverb that people don't know what to say. Mm-hmm. And so you can't listen really to the words of what, and this is paraphrasing, of course, but you, people don't know what to say. And so they can say the only thing that they know, which is often, you know, a, a, a short sighted uh, platitude. Mm-hmm. And you have to listen underneath that, what they're trying to say. Mm-hmm. And it, that's easier said than done in the moment. Um, one of the things you guys you know, also talk about in the book is uh, marriages, which uh, you know the research better than I do, Beverly, but uh, the research seems to show that you know, families that go through a, a crisis, specifically like you know, losing a child, uh, the, the survival rate of those relationships is substantially lower. Uh, as a family goes through crisis, what are some practical suggestions of what they can do um, to, to keep a marriage intact, even if their family isn't intact the way that they want it to be. Mm-hmm. David Kessler writes about this in his n- new book, which is excellent. It's called The Sixth Stage of Grief, Finding M- Meaning. And he says that, in his opinion, and I, I totally agree, is that the reason that relationships are hurt is because people judge other people's grief. If you don't grieve like me, you're not grieving the right way. That's so true. So true. And Rick and I, my husband and I, are totally different personality, and we did not grieve the same. And so what we did, and which is, I mean, it's what I encourage with my clients, become each other's students. Tell me more about that. Be curious. Yes. Be curious. Ask questions. Um, we, we still do that. If we sit on the back porch, we do most nights, and he'll say something like, how you doing today? maybe once a month or whatever. And I know he's speaking specifically about how you doing about grief. 
and we talk about it for a minute because we're different in the way we handle it. Ten, ten years later. Yes. Still talking about it. Yes. Hmm. How you doing? How, how you processing? You doing okay? You talk about uh, Kessler's line about purpose. Uh-huh. Right? Meaning, you have a line in the book that you had to reaffirm my life's destination. Right. What did you mean by, by that? Is it the same idea of like what my purpose is, my life's destination? Is that same direction? Yeah, I I believe that direction is everything, but it's making sure you know where you're going, and that is always in your view. Hmm. Destination, you're thinking about it, you're focused on it, you find joy when you think about it. Make that practical for me. Obviously, you know, my mom passes away a couple months later. Um, What is the destination that I need to, like, be looking for? Well, I think, obviously, heaven is the one we think of from a global standpoint, but uh, I think everybody has to kind of determine their own with that, Luke. I think okay. you've you got to know what's the next thing that, I'm, that I want to do here. And it may be I want to be able to continue to share my own story. It may be I, I want to learn. I think when we lose a parent, it makes us focus on being a parent. Mm-hmm. And it's refocusing on our, our destination in parenting. Mm-hmm. What do you want to do? What does it look like? It also may, may be a way you want to help your dad. Yeah, yeah it's good. Yeah, and there, part of destination is what do you not want your destination oh, to be? Oh, yes, yes. So I would think, you know, for Luke, for you, um, if you don't learn to carry your grief and pain well, five years from now, what kind of dad could you be? Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no. And let me try to take the steps to envision a destination and a direction that keeps me pressing into the things that I want my daughters That's to see okay. in me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I know Casey, early on after Jenny died, my wife and Casey have always had a close relationship. And Casey said, are you going to be bitter? And my mom was forced to have to think through it. What does she mean by that? And of course, Casey wasn't like, you're a bitter woman, but... Are you going to be bitter about a death to where it impacts the kind of fun, adventurous, spontaneous woman you are? Wasn't part of that question like, how are you going to be present for my, our kids? Like, I think it's how, I don't think, Casey didn't express that, but I think it's how my mom interpreted that. Yeah. She, you know, does it, is, will I still get on the ground and will I play with the, the kids? And mm-hmm. What will Christmas be like? Mm-hmm. Is there still going to be crazy dancing in the ki- kitchen? The interesting part about that story is I answered the question before I knew how I was going to live it out. Yeah. I said, absolutely not. Because that was the destination. That's right. And then I pondered, how am I going to live into that? So you're reverse engineering. This is the kind of person That's right. God has created me to be. That's right. This is the kind of person I want to be, and I'm going to make the, the steps necessary mm-hmm. to get there. Well, and Jonathan opened his sister's funeral with a beautiful story. Uh, I was telling the story way before Jenny died with her p- permission. But Jenny and David struggled with secondary infertility. They had one little girl and then just could not have another baby. Mm-hmm. I mean, we did, I say we because it felt like we, pills and surgeries and treatment, the price of a small car. You know, there was a lot going on with that, but just could not have another baby. And one year we decided, I think it was Josh's idea, I know it was, why don't we all fast something, give up something every day to remind us to pray for Jenny till either she has a baby or comes to peace was the language. We did not tell Jenny and David that. A few months later, probably eight months later, Jenny called a family meeting at Thanksgiving and said, Mom, do you remember 
do you remember when I was a little girl and you taught me to plan my funeral? I said, I do remember that. Let me say right here, I never thought I'd be present for it, but I remember that. And what I did with my children is I taught them to pick out two or three characteristics they wanted their life to be known for. What words do you want said about you at your funeral? And live into those words. That is a destination. Jenny said, I don't want people ever walking by my casket and saying, oh, there's that poor and fertile woman. But I want people walking by my casket someday and saying, there's a woman who continued to serve and praise the Lord when she didn't get her way. And Jonathan said, and today that's our family. We didn't get our way, but we're not walking away. Mm. And I declared that before I knew how I was going to live it out. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, uh, reading Scar Hope and having these conversations, Beverly, have brought up one detail that I will always remember about uh, you know, February of 2010 is a couple months later, uh, I get a call from Josh. And you know, Josh and I have known each other for 20 years now. Uh, and, you know, Josh knew, you know, back in college when Lindsay and I got married, we got dogs. And so Lindsay got a ring. I got a dog. Uh, his name was Chief. I feel like I got a better deal out of the, the equation than her. Like, I, the dog was way better than that ring. Uh, no, no offense, Lindsay. I'm not giving you a new one. But, uh, you know, I, anyway, I'm just saying, like, we, we love this dog. Very special to us. And Josh didn't have a dog at the time. I'm, I'm not saying he didn't like Chief, but it wasn't, like... You you love our dog Oliver, who's sitting on the couch next to your mom right now, more than you love Chief back then. I think that's fair to say. Anyway, so Chief passes away probably two months after Jenny had passed away, or maybe not, not even that long. And Josh calls me up and he said, "Hey, I heard that uh, did did Chief pass away?" And uh, it it was I'm getting emotional now. Um, and, and I said, "Yeah," and he goes, "Man, I'm sorry I didn't call about it." And I thought it. Like, for as much as I love this dog, it's trivial compared to your sister and, uh, you know, the mother of your niece. And, uh, th- you know, the fact that he reached out and expressed compassion in a time when, you know, he had all the reason in the world to only care about himself is, uh, you know, one of the reasons I'm really grateful for the son that uh, you mm-hmm. raised. You and Thank Rich you. did a great job raising all three of your kids. So, Thank you. Um, anyway, the book is Scarred Hope. People go get the book. And uh, if you get the book, leave a review. If you don't leave a five-star review, you're dead to us. So <laughs> Beverly's coming for you. <laughs> she will come for you. Hey, it's, it only, it's only available on Amazon. Amazon. Just e-book or physical book, Amazon. They own the world now. Just give it to Amazon. That's all you just go right there. Yep. That's what everyone's going to do anyway. 70% of books are sold through Amazon. It's not like you're like, hey, let me go find a Barnes mm-hmm. & Noble. No offense to those of you who have bought a book of mine at Barnes & Noble. But uh, for everyone else, you know, Amazon, go get it. Scarred Hope, it is out now. And uh, these are people I love a whole lot. So go get the hey, book. We, we love, love you it. too. Thank you. Yes, we do love Thanks you. Thanks for having us on, man. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, this is, uh, you know, Oliver sat here for the whole podcast, my dog Oliver. Mm. Some of you might remember when uh, Richard Beck was on the podcast and Oliver tried to destroy it. So I think, I think Oliver likes you guys more than Richard Beck. Well, we do love point. Oliver. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There it is. He feels the love. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.